Hi everybody, Michael Davis here and welcome to Bone to Pick and Happy New Year. I can't think of a better way to kick off our 2018 than by sitting down with our Artist of the Month, the great Gil Goldstein. Um, an internationally renowned and much sought after composer, arranger, producer, instrumentalist. Gil has drawn the musical blueprints for the jazz world's most prominent artists for the past four decades. He is a five-time Grammy Award winner. His extraordinary list of, uh, of uh, credits includes work with Pat Metheny, Pat Martino, David Sanborn, Chris Bote, Michael Brecker, Bobby McFerrin, James Moody, Jim Hall, Esperanza Spaulding, and a longtime association with the iconic Gil Evans. He has composed and arranged numerous scores for motion pictures and television. He's the author of the Jazz Composer's Companion book, a very popular book. Uh, he's on the faculty at NYU here in New York. Uh, he is an accordionist extraordinaire, to say the least. Started at age five, the tender age of five, and he's grown to become what Pat Metheny affectionately refers to as the zealot of jazz. In other words, a person who can fit into absolutely any situation and enhance that situation, and uh, Gil does that at the absolute highest level. Um, I'm honored to be a friend of Gil's, and I'm uh, equally honored to have had the opportunity to work for Gil many, many times and it's always inspiring playing his music and, and when the phone rings and it's Gil, uh, you know it's gonna be something special. So really thanks, looking Mike. forward to this. Gil, thanks for taking time Thank out of you. your busy schedule. I know you got uh, lots of stuff going on, so uh, we really appreciate this. Thank you. Gil, let's jump in and, you know, I mentioned the accordion and uh, you started at age five. Maybe just talk a little bit about what your childhood was like and how you got into music and, and all that good stuff. Well, it was, th it was through the accordion, uh, <laughs> as funny as that sounds. I mean, I, I used to watch TV and it, the accordion was very visible, you know, that uh, Lawrence Welk show, you know, you couldn't. <laughs> but, you know, what are you going to say about Lawrence Welk? The arrangements were very good. The musicians played them perfectly, mm -hmm. you know, and I was like, wow, look at that. The piano player never seems to make a mistake ever, you know, <laughs> and everybody's like burning in their own way. Yeah, right. Now, right. I just did a record that Steve Jordan produced for Betty Levette, the great blues singer, and they were both talking about how much they liked Lawrence Well. <laughs> so I went, Phew. Okay, it's not a black-white thing. Let's just put it like that. Okay, you know, that stuff crosses borders, you know. I was always trying to hide it. I'm saying now, I love it. <laughs> you know, so anyway, I saw the accordion, and I, I thought, you know, I think that's my instrument. I made some decision in my head. And then my parents got me an accordion and a accordion teacher and it was just like you know I understood it right away it was That's like awesome. okay this is it and it happens to be a great first instrument because you have bass notes and melody and you can get some chords in there and it's a wind instrument mm -hmm. you know it is a a breathing instrument it's not no offense to piano but piano is you know, a percussive instrument that doesn't fit into every, you know, it's, it, you're, you're dealing with a, either a, it's almost like a stringed instrument because there's up bows and down bows and mm -hmm. there's a, a, you know, an, an in and out 
like right. Boeing, and the same with the breath. You know, there is a breath. You know, and there is vibrato, and there's dynamics, and there's there's all the things that you need. It's it's easier, you know, than playing a a brass instrument and getting a sound. You can get a sound right away right. and start to understand how breath is part of music, which is and that you have both the the melody and the bass. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of a great way to start for an instrument. Yeah, well, it's cool. I mean, you've you've made it cool. That's for sure. You've uh, taken it to the next level, uh, to say the least. So, um, and and when did you start piano? Like that was so. Then I started about well? like when I was about ten. You know, my parents bought a piano, and I remember watching my accordion teacher. That was literally the last time I saw him walking up the steps to our basement, going, "All right, you're going to lose your left hand. You know, <laughs> the, the buttons are going to go to pot. You know," and I was like. No, I'm going to remember it. Don't worry about it, you know. So then, you know, I played piano. I played cello in in school terribly. You know, there was an orchestra. And I, I was like, you know, I was the worst cellist that ever lived. And maintain that. <laughs> I can pick up a cello and it's, I have still have my sound. Just terrible. Well... Whatever you figured out how to make the cello beautiful through your writing, so yeah. uh, somehow that gave you. A, 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 a I, I love to, to write for with. cello, and you know I, that uh, maybe it's somehow related <laughs> to the fact that I butchered so many <laughs> wonderful pieces. But so you know, I started playing piano and started to forget about the accordion until I was about thirty-one or so. My brother said, "Gil, you want your accordion back?" and I went, accordion, of course. I kind of forgot I played oh, wow. accordion. Wow. When I Amazing. played with Billy Cobham, I bought a melodica on the road. And I said, maybe I'm going to take some solos on that. And it still didn't dawn on me that I, an accordion, I'm an accordion player. And I'm not a very good melodica player because I am also not a very good breather. And I can't really connect with my breath, unfortunately. I have... I'm a little asthmatic, and okay. when I, I play, it's like, <laughs> it doesn't, it's not a natural thing for me at all. So I played terrible melodica, and then it just started to dawn on me that I played accordion. And when I started bringing my accordion back to New York, everybody wanted accordion all of a sudden. Michelle Petrucciani lived on 13th Street in Brooklyn, and I was friendly with him. And he was like, man, you play accordion? Yeah. <laughs> then we had to do some stuff together, man. I didn't know you played accordion. I said, yeah, I didn't know I played accordion for a while. <laughs> you know, and I played on a record he did, a kind of a French song, you know. And um, Well, it's a good thing your brother... Uh got that out of the garage for you. Hello, yeah. hello. <laughs> Thanks, bro. Seriously, I mean, I, I, at some point I would have remembered, right. but it was like, boom. And it turns out, I, I, you know, it, 
it's almost, you know, like a joke that my parents bought me one little black accordion that was very small. And then they bought me what they call a lady's size accordion, which is the, the full amount of keys, but it was a little bit littler for a kid. Mm -hmm. And they call it lady's size because the keys are very close together, but it still has 120 bass and the number of keys, I forgot what it is, maybe 44 keys. Um, and I've been playing that accordion since I'm eight years old. And I still, I just went to Mexico with Bobby McFerrin and I brought that accordion. And it's still in perfect condition, wow. in perfect tune. When the guy was tuning the piano in Cancun, I said, he said, yeah, I said, is it 440 here? He, he goes, yes, we're 440. And he did it and showed me. And I said, would you just check my accordion? He's perfect 440. Wow. Yeah, literally, it's been After all that 60 <laughs> years. And I've never had it tuned. And I have uh, obviously bought other and given been given other accordions. And they're always in need of repair. Wow. Something happens, the bass note gets stuck, and this and that, and they need to be tuned. This instrument, it was like, it's like a, a Dorian Gray instrument. <laughs> you know, there's a picture somewhere of a really funky accordion, like you see most accordions. <laughs> You right. know, have like, you know, <laughs> the keys are, you know, what? And it smells, it's got that mildewy smell. It was right. in the basement. This had none of that. Flat as a pancake. It's a, it's a miracle. But there is a picture of it somewhere, <laughs> you know. Awesome. Well, let's talk a little okay. bit about your college years. I know uh, okay. you went to Berkeley for a minute. You went to University of Maryland, uh, University of Miami. Right. Um, in, the, in the exact order, it was the university, American University in Washington, D.C., where I grew up for two years, where I started to have some really great music teachers. Hmm. This woman, Esther Williamson Ballou, is a very great composer, and she actually studied at Bennington College with a guy named Otto Luning, Luning who I also studied with when I moved to New York. And it was a funny coincidence, but she was a great um, music theory teacher. Mm. Really okay. brilliant. Cool. You know, yeah. she came in the first class. Or we're gonna. It's probably gonna be more than an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so she came into the first class, and she had a little bit of a walking problem. She had been in some kind of accident, and she walked like with a cane and kind of bent over. And she leaned on her desk, and she goes. Is that a rhythm? And we went, I don't know, is that a rhythm? And her point was, it's something is not a rhythm until it has an end. So if distinguishes a, a passage of time, and she had those kind of, you know, wow. thought provoking, like, oh, okay, yeah, okay, right, okay, rhythm. You know, big issues, you know, I started thinking about, she introduced me to, like, Schenkerian thought, you know, uh, you know, little lines that connected things, and uh, 
she had a, she gave he had some great books that I still recommend to people that are the best books of their kind composition and counterpoint and composition by Felix Salzer it's and it's everything and she said this line she says if you know this you know 95% of what you need to know in music and i went wow <laughs> you know, I could find the five percent somewhere else, probably. <laughs> you know, so I, I. But I was very impressed that she said that. I went, "Wow, that's got to be some good stuff." Yeah, and it really was. And then there was a book called Creative Orchestration, that is, you know, there's so many orchestration books, and this book is like very thin mm. and very common sense and like oh yeah makes sense you know and i recommended it to esperanza spalding when i was working with her and she quick wrote it down and got it and you know wow. she's like that yeah, yeah. type of person that like okay all right i'm gonna get it and you can still get it you know yeah and it's just an excellent book you know so i studied with her Went to Berkeley for a year, kind of got lost, you know, like, whoa. but I did study with Ray Santisi, who was, gave very short but compact lessons. He'd give you like a big thing, you know, and then you, you could work on that for four years, you know, the exercise. And then you'd come in and play it and he'd just stand and look outside the window, like who is walking by on the street and. I went, Ray, did you hear that? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got it. You got it. Sorry. And uh, so, you know, the lessons themselves were not so f full, but he gave like tons of stuff. Uh -huh. And I studied with another guy there named Paul Schmeling. And he said some incredible things about music like... When you hear pitches in a row and the, and it goes a whole step and a half step, those the, it, if you hear a, a C and then it goes to C sharp, the C sharp kind of cancels out the C, and it keeps going if you go until you make a jump and then both notes keep ringing on, and they need to have a resolution or you need to go somewhere with it and. That's a very big concept. Yeah, right. You know, For that sure. when notes kind of just hang out there, you can't forget them. <laughs> and that's important, you know. Mm -hmm. And I, I, it was those kind of good teachers that I found some good information, but the, it was just too much, you mm -hmm. know. I was, I was overwhelmed by the, you know, just the general too much information thing that we were talking about before. It seemed like... It was starting there. And I also kind of discovered Schillinger stuff, which I don't know if people know, but Berkeley was originally the Schillinger. Do you know that? No, I didn't know that. Wow. It's, it's amazing <laughs> that it's like, it's such a big, important thing. And not many people know this, that originally Berkeley was a, a place that taught the Schillinger system of composition. Wow, okay. Yeah, and when Toshiko came here, it was all about, you know, 
It was the Schillinger method, you know, and somehow there was a rift between Lee Burke and Schillinger and he said, forget it, you know, it's, uh, and it just became kind of taboo. And wow. I, I always tell a funny story that I have to tell again, because you never know, Please you might do. not, you yeah. might not. <laughs> I walk out of the street and get hit by a bus. He said, I should have told that story. Um, um, they, they had the two Schillinger books there. And at that point, you couldn't buy them even. They were out of print. They had a bookstore uh -huh. called the Bumblebee Bookstore. And they didn't have it. I said, do you have the Schillinger books? They go, no, we can't, can't get them anymore. So I went in the library and they had them. So I said, I got to get the book. <laughs> it was on the second floor of the library and I walked over to a window and I had the books with me and I just went what's the weather right outside <laughs> and I threw them onto the street I went racing down and I got the books and I may have deprived some other students but you had, I, you I had, had to have the books I had to have them I had to have them do you still have the books? Still got them. See, it was worth it. It was worth it. Yeah. You know. Probably nobody would have gotten more out of it than you did. So. I don't know. You know. <laughs> the Schillinger books, quite honestly, it's a little bit too much information. Because he wanted to... I'm going to give you a quick description of the Schillinger method. He said that scientific thinking can create musical material that if we just rely on intuition we will not go further. We have to scientifically look for musical materials. So he was very much criticized that it's a like intellectual, you know. In reality, I think he meant you have to f discover materials that you go, huh, that's interesting. And that has to spark your intuition. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. uh, people have misinterpreted it to say it's a very cold and mathematical thing, which it is. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Gershwin studied with them and he, you can hear, to me, I can hear in Porgy and Bess, like, you know, he'll do a thing, a figure, and then he'll do it again in a different key. And he's thinking like shapes and, you know, visual ideas and you know, he, Schillinger in, introduced the idea of using a graph in music to say, you know, up and down is pitch and left to right is rhythm. So you could, you know, you could see any melody or any chord as a, as a, um, like kind of as an x-ray of mm -hmm. it. And you go, okay. And then instead of thinking of it as, minor second and minor third, it's divided as discrete numbers. You know, it's one is a half step, two is a whole step. And it gets you away from the tonality constraints, you know. Mm -hmm. It's not like we're locked into this tonality system that can tend to, you know, drag you down. And mm -hmm. Slonimsky grew totally out of wow okay which people know slanimsky because he wrote that thesaurus and he wanted to find every possible 
you know, permutation of one, one, two, three, two, one, four, three, two, three, you know, and eventually you're going to, you're going to come up with something that might spark an idea, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and that's the idea of it. Yeah. As I understand Schillinger. Yeah. Oh, cool. Thanks for sharing about, about that. That's good. And I mean, you're right. More people should know that Berkeley uh, stemmed from that. You know, uh, definitely. Yes. Yeah. No question. That was it. And a lot of film composers took a lot from that. And mainly like Gershwin and they, you know, uh, some composers that really, you know, gave credit to Schillinger for... Mm -hmm. Let's talk about uh, your, your early years in New York. And I know you had some some really important associations that started early on, like Pat Martino and, and Pat Matheny, of course. But maybe take us back to, uh, what was it, 1974 you moved to New York? I think I moved here in 76. 76, sorry. Um, um, but maybe talk about, we were seeing your beautiful apartment, but talking about what, what it was like back then and, and what, just some of your memories of the important kind of associations or projects that, that uh, helped shape uh, what was to come for you in your career? Well, well, the, the more important year for me was 1973, because I went to the University of Miami, and there I met in the first week Pat Metheny and Jocko. I heard Jocko play at a club with Iris Sullivan, and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> sorry. You know, does not. I couldn't process it. Yeah, I bet. You know. And then the next couple days, we had a composition class, and I heard Pat play in the class, and it immediately went from like a class to like a professional jazz venue. You know, and I was like, I was laughing in the class. I went serious. No, <laughs> really? Okay. <laughs> All right, you know this is what we're doing here. Yeah, you know it's like it was such a whole nother level than I had ever experienced. You know that, you know, and Pat was, I'm gonna say, and and Jocko, they were kind of as evolved as they were at you know twenty, as they were at forty or fifty. Mm -hmm. Not exactly, of course, but. It was not a big jump, you know. It was like, wow, they're they're there. Yeah, they're so know. advanced at that early they age. They were huh? so advanced. Yeah. It was like, you know, I mean, today you have like Joey Alexander, who's fourteen, but Pat and Pat and Jocko were another th thing. It was like a different advancement. Mm -hmm. You know, it was mm -hmm. like. A completely new sound on an instrument. It was like no, no. I mean, this makes didn't compute for me because I had never heard a a peer of my generation. You know, to me that would be like if uh, you know in the fifties you heard Bird and you were one of the saxophonists and you go, oh wait a minute, this is new. <laughs> this is a, a leap. You know, the language has, yeah. you know, morphed, and nobody told me. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't get that memo. We're morphing the language. <laughs> well, obviously, meeting them there, then that carried okay. over to, oh, to sorry. New York, yeah, right? Yeah. So, sorry. So then I met Pat, 
He came back the next year. He left at the half semester. Jocko stayed there the year. And then, you know, I stayed in touch with Pat and I went up to Berkeley and uh, to maybe teach at Berkeley on Pat's invitation. And then I saw a gig with Jocko. Jocko came back with me to New York. I had a cousin that had an apartment. He said, can I crash with you? I said, yeah. You know, he was sleeping <laughs> on the floor in, in my cousin's apartment. You know, I was sleeping on the sofa. And he was starting to reach out to like, he called Keith and, uh, you know. And, and then he said to me, which brings us to Pat Martino. He said, man, I just play with Pat Martino. He goes, you want to play with him? <laughs> I said, yeah. yeah. And I was a big Pat Martino fan. I, I loved sure, Pat Martino. And uh, he said, here's his number. Give him a call. And so I called him up. You know, I just called him, cold called him. And, uh, you know, I said, I want to, I want to, he's a, I, I, I was very, very not, confident you know i said uh, i have mr Mar martino 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 <laughs> <laughs> you know i was just like as uh you know not like jocko uh -huh. let's just say that uh-huh and uh and so i said uh, i i'd like to come down and, and play with you he goes are you sure man <laughs> <laughs> i said yeah yeah no no i am sure definitely so I, I made an appointment to go down and see him, and Jocko said, hey man, write a tune before you go down there, like something really hard that like says, you know, I'm the cat, you know? And I did. I wrote like a really hard tune, thinking of Pat Martino as like something that would challenge him. Mm -hmm. he, and I said, hey, I just wrote this tune. And he goes, wow. It was exactly like Jocko had said, you know. He said, I like that. That's a good tune. And then he, we, we played through it and we kind of were like learning it. And he goes, I'd like to call it Open Road. I said, fine with me. <laughs> I got nothing. And we played it, we did a record in a couple of years and recorded Open Road. And I went like, wow, it was just like Jocko had predicted, you know, it was like, it all worked out, you know. <laughs> That's a great story. Yeah, yeah. That's I awesome. mean, you know, I, it, it was really like kind of uh, a wing and a prayer, you know. But, mm -hmm. you know, I wanted to meet people like that. And, you know, there are some people that you meet I think in the music business that you go, I like them mm -hmm. and I really do want to work with them, mm -hmm. you know, and there's other people you go, eh, not really, you know, mm -hmm. I don't think we have any sympathy and, mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes you have to work with those people and you do your best and you still do your best job, but there's a couple people and Pat Martino was one of those people that I said, I want to work with Pat and mm -hmm. I want to. <laughs> see where our thing can develop into musically. And then you ended up doing his next three records, right? Right, at that then point? I did, yeah, in about, in about three weeks, he, had, he got signed to Warner Brothers, and so we did a record for Warner Brothers that he worked on. And I was, I say this in the most respectful way, that we were working together so much that I was a little bit of a producer and arranger on the record, even though I was not yet a producer or an arranger, okay. because he would have it in a certain form, and I, I would 
remembered helping translate it and write parts and <clears throat> it was actually the first time I wrote an arrangement for Mike and Randy who were hired to play on one of the tunes and then they were coming in the next day and Pat goes we should probably have an arrangement for them <laughs> and I went oh yeah I would probably be good <laughs> you know so I was like okay <laughs> arranging well that's you know that's perfect because the next question i had on my list is is how what your early projects as an arranger and how that uh, you, you kind of set that up beautifully okay. there how, how that uh how that evolved for you you've obviously gone on to uh become one of the preeminent arrangers anywhere in the world but what was the what was the beginning of gil goldstein's well, arranging career it's like? interesting because i was always interested in arranging and i took some arranging you know, camps in Washington, D.C. when I was growing up with Bill Potts, Charlie mm. Mariano was on it, and, you know, then I was starting to get into arranging, but I really did not think of arranging as something that really related to me until I met Gil Evans, working with Billy Cobb, he hired him for a project that we did in Switzerland that became... Uh, one of the rare Gil Evans orchestra gigs uh, that's on video. Mm. There's not that many. He has mm -hmm. some at the public theater with, you know, recent bands. And, uh, you know, it was a little bit thrown together. It was Billy Cobham's rhythm section at the time, which was me, Tim Landers, Dean Brown, and Billy. And then it was a lot of... Gill's guys that he brought over and then there was maybe 10 other European players that were part of the orchestra mm. so that's how and literally from the minute I saw and met Gill I felt like he's my guy <laughs> you know and I unfortunately didn't know that much about Gill you know I knew there were masterworks, but they were almost too big for me at the mm. time to... I don't understand. You know, it's just too much. Mm -hmm. and, but once I met Gil, I had my way into everything, you know. So that's how I really started arranging and thinking of myself as an arranger. Um, Pat Metheny just asked me that question too, but you were always like a and I wasn't, you know, at the University of Miami, I did a couple arrangements, some were successful, and then some I didn't really like, and then I got a little discouraged, and I went, oh, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm not an arranger, and then I would start working with people, and I was always kind of the go-to choice, well, you do arrange, right, and mm -hmm. I go, yeah, <laughs> I arrange, sure, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so I would s start learning, but it really wasn't until Gill that I really started to really think of myself as an arranger. And then I could work with Gill as a human, you know, and I got to see the philosophical side, which to me is much more important than the note side. Mm -hmm. I saw the note side and I learned a lot about his note side from working with him. He would say things like, uh, you know, I just use church harmony plus one note, which is a big clue, you know. His voicings are not like some crazy thing. It's usually a nice 
church harmony triad and a couple or one well-placed you know mm -hmm. vibratory mm -hmm. things that kicks it to another level of alchemy and and mm. gillness mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and and so that to me just little things like that were very like eye-opening you know and also the fact that gill was is not and i use this word i i don't want it to seem weird that i say this but gill was not the most organized you know it was not i was going to say anal <clears throat> but you know gill was like look his favorite drummer was elvin jones and he considered everybody after elvin to be a a sub, <laughs> Anita said to me, you know, he, so, which meant that Gil wanted, you know, he wanted the soulful thing, you know, he wanted it to vibrate and to be alive, and that's what he wanted from his arrangements, too, as beautifully crafted as they were, he wanted it to be, you mm -hmm. know, to shimmer and that doesn't really come from lined up mm -hmm. there's there's a certain if you just watch Gil conduct you know that's what he wanted in the music it was kind of like he wanted it to to float and to be alive and to just kind of simmer there you know it wasn't like a a constricted shape you know mm -hmm. and a lot of his you know voicings and shapes are not not you know out of the ordinary right but somehow right. that he put his orchestrational stamp on it and even stood in front of the orchestra and gave a like that you know it just caused the thing to do the right thing you know which is not so easy to to imitate or to recreate mm -hmm. it's a it's a a magical thing really it's cl it's clear that Gil Evans obviously had a, a huge impact on you but as you mentioned personally and and musically um you've certainly develop your own I the Gil Goldstein sound I mean every time I hear a chart of yours I know it's you who wrote it and in, in, in the most amazing way do it how has uh what's and this is kind of a little too general but your what's your approach to arranging when you say when whatever let's you know take any project you want but you're picking how are you how are you approaching arranging and also then I always think of you in the same light as most of the time you're doing some production as well even if you're not the producer i always feel like your input helps helps a project along from a from the producer side of things as well but is that too general of a question no but no it's, it's like, not hey. but it's all it's it's a, it's a lot of things because when i do arrange generally i'm always inventing a um how are we doing for parking? We're good. <laughs> <laughs> We're in Park Slope, so we have to think of parking. Um, um, that can be helpful to some students. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Especially if you avoid getting the ticket. That can exactly, be very helpful to the students. Exactly. Student. 
<laughs> you got to save money. So, um, usually, I very rarely write for the same group of instruments, you know, mm. because, you know, things given the way they are now, you know, you kind of have to think a little bit smaller. I mean, we did a record together with, remember, like a Fatian? Mm -hmm. Of course. Right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that, they were saying, Gil, you know, it's we have to keep the budget down. So it was, I had about eight, I said, could we have eight musicians in the orchestra? And then it was bass, and then Laika sang, and then uh, and there was always a trumpet player that was a guest. Yeah. Roy Hargrove... Uh, Graham Haynes yeah, and, and, uh, and Ambrose. Ambrose. Yeah. Right. Yep. So, um, and Rufus Reed playing bass. Hello. <laughs> and uh, so, so I wanted... An amazing to, combination of, uh, of instruments that well, you picked. I remember. It, uh, yeah, it was, it was I bass, was playing bass trombone, trombone, French horn. French horn. There was no There's trombone, right? No. Okay. And, so bass trombone, French horn, bass clarinet. There was, was there, there was flute, I believe, right? Or alto flute, maybe? You know what, it was probably well. alto flute and bass flute, and then maybe bass clarinet and clarinet, and then, I don't remember. A couple no. of strings, I think. And it was like maybe yeah. like two violas and two violin, and two cellos. But I don't remember, I'd have to look what it is. But the point being that, to me, once I settle on a, a, a smaller combination of instruments, that automatically is kind of producing, and it's sure. and it shapes my arrangement so mm. much that, and it gives me a stimulation of that I haven't, you know, written for these instruments yet, and you know it encourages musical ideas generally. Mm. Interesting. So, yeah, yeah. You know, that's kind of you know became my thing. The first person that really hired me to do a very professional arrangement, you know, not that the other ones weren't, but that was, it was Michael Franks, and he wanted me to arrange uh, two songs for a record, and again, it was, can you keep it a little smaller? So my original instinct was, it was going to be strings mainly, and I didn't want to have six violins, three four violas and the two cellos because i thought it would it would be in a register that would be thin sounding mm -hmm. so i opted for four cellos and four violas and then i hired a a recorder player that was and a flute that became the high elements cuz i thought one flute up there that could sound like six violins going <laughs> i just want that line up yeah there. yeah i don't it doesn't have, doesn't to, be have to be a bunch of people playing it i could have one person playing it that line and then i have like a nice vibratory thing that is low and it's going to have more overtones so right away that kind of became my thing and it was a little bit of luck and kismet that I kind of discovered it, and the guy that contracted it was the famous Emile Charlotte, and uh, 
parking constrictor. <laughs> and I'm good to, can I finish this story? Of course, yeah. No, no, perfect. All right. It was the great Emil Charlotte who come, and he said, Gil, this is going to be pure mud. <laughs> you know, I went, man, you know, thank you. Thanks. Thank you. We'll get another contractor. <laughs> yeah. No, but it was already hired. You know, he was there. He was there at the session. And uh, I went, what? And it was also Steve Rodby was playing bass. So it was bass, okay. four cellos, and four violas, and these couple little low woodwinds, you know, and maybe a flute. And uh, it sounded great. Yeah. You know, I'm sure. And that kind of started me on a path of, you know, finding small things that would vibrate in a good way. Yeah, that's really well said. And, and having had the good fortune of playing on so many of your things, you just you capsitalized it beautifully. That's exactly what uh, putting the, the musical thoughts into words is uh, brilliantly done there. All right, we are back. Street parking in New York City. You can't beat it, right? <laughs> but we're all set now. Gil, I want to ask you about, uh, you have such an important association with Michael Brecker, and it's what a loss for all of us as musicians, but his music and the work that you've done with him lives on. Maybe talk a little bit about Mike, your relationship with him, and then specifically about the Wide Angle CD. One of my favorite okay. uh, Mike CDs in the Quindic Ted. Your writing on that was spectacular, but... Uh, Anyway, your, well, your thoughts. Well, that ties into the discussion that we were having because it was, about, it was a lot about the instrumentation and the way that instrumentation developed. So this is a real quick back to Mike. First of all, I met Mike right around the time. I met him a, a many times in New York just like, you know, when I was here and it was just like, oh. Oh, yeah, almost, almost, <laughs> you know, kind of close calls, you know. A mic sighting. Here he is. <laughs> it was a lot of this. <laughs> I have a lot of very nice remembrances, though, of Mike when I didn't know him so well and kind of close encounters. But he was always the nicest guy and funny and charming and, uh, and all of that. And then, then I worked with him when I, I met Gil Evans. He was on this gig, this Gil Evans orchestra gig with Billy Cobham. And okay. he was part of that. Oh, okay. So I spent about three weeks with him in uh, um, <clears throat> the south of uh, Switzerland around Locarno and Lugano. But it was still kind of, you know... <laughs> and uh, I also met my wife that same week, so it was kind of everything, you know. Like Mike was there, my wife was there, Gil Evans I had just met. It was like, hey, where do I go, you know? And uh, um, so, all right, so I met Mike there, and then we had some some little close encounters. Then I was going to do a tour. I did a tour with Don Elias, and he it was he was hired to by the Arts Council of England um, to do a Don Elias tour, and he had mm. Mike and Randy and four percussionists. It was Don Elias, Alex Acuna, and uh, Giovanni Hidalgo, hmm. and it was me and. Um, I got Carlos Benevent involved in it. He had been working with um, Don, 
Gene Perla, and he kind of wanted to go another direction. And uh, we, we involved uh, Carlos Benevent. Mitch Stein was playing guitar. So there I really started to have more than a close encounter. And it started by the fact that our first gig, I was standing behind him and Randy and comping. And, you know, it was a lot of open E, you know. Mm -hmm. So I was just, like, following him everywhere, you know. And I was like, and he turned around once and he went, Man, you're comping your ass off, <laughs> you know. And I went, thanks for noticing, you know. But that was really our first, like, you know, I, I noticed you, yeah. you know. Yeah, um, In a good way. <laughs> we had some other times when it was, like, not that good. <laughs> you know, and I went, oh, I guess we'll never work together. But that was a good one. Mm -hmm. And then, I think it was on that gig. Yeah, it was on that gig. It was the first rehearsals, and Randy couldn't make the rehearsal. And Alex Sipiagin was in England. And I said, hey, well, there's a really good trumpet player here, Alex. And that has actually nothing to do with the story, except for the fact that we were standing outside and Mike said to me, uh, Gil, and he said it like in, almost like in slow motion, but really in slow motion, I'm doing a concert in Bologna, Italy, and someone wrote a commissioned piece for me, but... I would like to play one of my own pieces, and he wasn't getting to the point, but I knew he was going to ask me to, to do arrange. an arrangement. Yeah. So I said, and you want me to write an <laughs> arrangement for you? <laughs> I literally, I was such a clod. And he goes, yes. <coughs> Yeah, I couldn't wait. You know, I could. I said, You're, we're going there, aren't we? We're going there. <laughs> and I remember Alex was standing there, and I was like, and, and uh, so he, he said that. So I got together with Mike, and I wrote an arrangement of African Skies mm -hmm. for orchestra, and it had a full choir. Wow. And I happened to be on tour at the time. This is a long story, too. All my stories are long. Um, I happened to be on tour at the time with the world's greatest accordionist, Richard Galliano. Okay, yeah. He hired me to play piano and accordion. So I always say that that made me the world's second greatest accordionist. Because <laughs> why else would he... he that's if a, I'm, he hires a, me, I'm second. That's clearly an endorsement. That's, that's you an know, endorsement. No question. I'm second, okay? <laughs> Whatever any accordionist yeah. else think, their position related the, to Richard, Yeah, I'm second, okay? The, and I'm the, very proud to be the second. The highest too. anybody else can go is third now. Third, third is, is and, close, and lower. That's it. That's lower, yeah. yeah. Third and down, you got it. That's still available for a purchase. But... Second is done, yeah. and first is still there. <laughs> so, um, so I was doing a tour with Richard Galliano, and it just turned out that the rehearsals for this concert in Bologna were 
very close to where I was with Richard at the time of these tours. Hmm. So I would go and listen to the rehearsals and show up there like, how's it? And it was disastrously bad how they they started at minus a thousand. Oh, wow. Because okay. I had I had very rhythmic, I wanted it to be kind of like a Steve Reich, like African rhythmic thing without the drums totally supplying it. I wanted the orchestra to do it. Okay. To do the, the, the pulsation like Steve Reich, you know. Right, right. And, and uh, they couldn't do it. You know, it was like, you know, it was like the pulse was not, was not there and they were not interlocking. Okay. So Mike gets there after two rehearsals that I was like, and so Mike's finally there and it gets worse because Mike is playing and then it's more confusing for them because... He's their hair and all that. They're hearing all that. So then Mike goes, Gil, we, we we have to have a drummer. We have to have a drummer. This is a funny story. So I said, All right, yeah, okay. And they go, We have a fantastic drummer. He's one of the greatest in Italy. He's fantastic. And I went, Okay, good, get him on there. And he was one of these drummers, bless his heart, that thinks I am the pulse. You know, okay. I am the pulse. I hate, I, this is my biggest pet peeve. You know, it's like, do, 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 do. And meanwhile, it, he's not listening to one thing around him, you know. And there happened to be two marimba players, and I wrote marimba parts, and they had played with like Steve Reich and Philip Glass, and they were totally in the pocket. I could see them and hear them through the, sludge that they were doom, 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 doom. and I said <clears throat> okay he didn't really help so we get to the sound check this is a really long story <laughs> it's worth it this is great <laughs> we get to the sound check and like I think I was already like starting to drink like at the sound check I said I need I've a drink I've I heard I, of that happening yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, said, I was at like a little place I went I don't think I can get through this. Like if they were going to play, they couldn't even play the intro was not together. So we do the sound check. Still didn't sound good. And then I walk up to the drummer and I said, look, I don't want to blame you for why things are not holding together. But, it, you know, right next to you are the, the marim. And he was doing the thing that I hate the most about drummers, that they start going like this. And they're looking at the music. <laughs> And as soon as they start looking at the music, they're not listening to anything. They're looking. And I said, but why are you looking at the music? It's in 12-8. He goes, but the ending. I must get the ending. I said, I don't care about the ending. I care about the 12 minutes before the ending. You know, if you blow the ending, it's all right. It's okay, you know. Because he was like counting like 600 bars before, bam! You know, just think that it's going to end on two, okay? And just, I'll give you a cue, and then just hit a two, you know? That'll be fine. But so, he's like looking, and I'm starting to say to him, look, <clears throat> I really would prefer that you don't look at the music, because 
once it starts to groove, I need you to kind of be in between. And unfortunately, he was louder than anybody else, so it started to create a real jag in the thing. Mm -hmm. So he said, no, but I must look the music. <laughs> and... And so, yeah, I said, look, other drum, really great drummers don't need to look at the music because there's nothing there on the page. I need you to be, and I take the music and I rip it up. I just go, I just, I like grab it in a fit of passion as I see my piece for Mike going down the toilet. <laughs> And there was the first arrangement in the toilet, which I was not going to have. So I just went, I don't care about it. Just, I finished. And I look up, and I look up, and I kind of raise my voice, too, like I just did now. And I see Mike, and Mike goes like this. <laughs> like a kind of comical, but like, oh, you crazy. You know, so we go to dinner, he goes, Man, I hope you didn't blow it with that drummer. Now he's gonna like totally sabotage us. And I went, Mike, I'm sorry. I I I couldn't control myself. So we get there. They never could play the introduction together. It was like dun da do dee, the beginning of African mm -hmm. Sky, and all of a sudden at the gig, it's like. It's like a beautiful intro, and it goes into the that was rubato, and they're we're all finding our way, and Mike is playing the melody, and they're playing off of Mike, and it gets to the groove, and they sound like unbelievable. Wow. And honestly and truly, I don't know if it's the function of. You know, we're just rehearsing now. Don't worry. It'll be fine. And we don't have to really... Honestly and truly. Mm -hmm. And the first violinist was this beautiful woman that was playing kind of like this <laughs> during the rehearsals. She was kind of just sitting like this and like, I hate you and I hate your jazz music. <laughs> and at the gig, she's like... And I went, Really? Seriously, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden we are totally grooving. And then afterwards she was like, this was a fantastic thing. And I went, okay, <laughs> what? why did you put me through that? And then we played the piece, we came back and they said, encore, we didn't have another piece. So we played it again from the groove. And mm. Mike said, Gil, you just solo. I mean, I I just played my stuff. You play. I played accordion on the thing to, oh, wow. to okay. help, you know, with a little <laughs> African squeezing. And so he said, you just play the solo. So I said, all right. And then we finished, and Mike said, I'm getting a fever for the orchestra. I went, wow. Because <laughs> at first he was like, I don't think orchestra and jazz mix. Hmm. I don't think it's a mix. Hmm. I said, I think it is, Mike. I, can I just suggest that it could mix, you know? And he had done, you know, with Klaus and... Sure, He yeah. had done orchestral stuff, but he was like, I don't know. I said, well, I, I believe in it. I think we can do this. And he went, all right, well, you're so adamant. I think you could do it. I think you could do it. 
I, he, I, I have faith that you can. I said, all right. I, well, look, we did it. You know. So then he got hired for this same tour that Alex, uh, uh, Don Elias got toured. And it was going to be called Mike Brecker plus Large Ensemble. And then Mike said to me, he goes, all right. So he goes, so we're probably going to have brass. I said, brass, woodwinds, and strings. <laughs> That's my idea, a little orchestra. And he goes, oh, colors. <laughs> <laughs> but he said it very funny. You yeah, know, yeah. Like, but like, probably a good idea. Yeah. You know? I wasn't even thinking that. I just thought we'd hire, you know, brass. Nothing against brass. But I said, we could have some woodwinds and some string. So we start, We did this tour with three strings, viola, cello, violin, three woodwinds, flute, doubling on alto flute, clarinet, bass clarinet, and one double reed. And they didn't have enough budget for French horn. So it was trombone or tuba and trumpet mm -hmm. and a rhythm section. So that was the first kind of quindectet mm -hmm. in a way. And I arranged Mike's songs like Arc of the Pendulum, It's Been Real, you know, his, his repertoire. Mm -hmm. And we did this tour and Mike was like, this was really good. Uh, that's my song sounded good like that and they did and it was it was a very small instrumentation and again I wasn't really sure how it was going to sound and how it was going to lay over into Mike's music and it was a really very small and agile instrumentation that sounded bigger than it looked mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. the three strings like on songs like never alone sounded like an orchestra it was like wow this is so big you know it and it was it looked tiny yeah you know so then mike came back and he started thinking i could write music that was thinking of that and we happened to have a great bass clarinet player named Ian Dixon that was in the band and the first thing that he wrote was um broadband dum boom boo doo doo so and he knew that was going to be bass clarinet mm -hmm. and he did a demo he always did demos and that was definitely bass clarinet the other instruments could have been it was hit and miss that you know it didn't necessarily have to be a flute but he used a flute sound mm -hmm. but i might not have orchestrated it like that and then he had piano as a predominant sound and so i took the piano and orchestrated what would have been the piano part because mike was very specific about it's not an F minor. It's this version of F minor. Yeah, sure. You know, that was his tunes. And the same thing with the bass. It was a, it's kind of a part, you mm -hmm. know. And uh, so you had a lot of, you know, material to work with. It was almost like orchestrating pictures at an exhibition. You had a pretty solid piece, mm -hmm. but... I didn't know yet how it was going to sound. And then as we started working, 
we decided to make it a string quartet and then we added the French horn, you know, which we originally wanted to do it. And that was the quintet, four strings, string quartet, the three woodwinds and three brass mm -hmm. and no piano, just guitar, because I was afraid that piano, if I played it or anybody played it, the, the, you know, piano players just have too many fingers and it would muck it up. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I wanted somebody that was going to play a part and a couple notes like chamber music. So I wrote very specific guitar <laughs> parts, you know, that were like, this is the, this is the thing, mm -hmm. you know, it's not just uh, comping. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah. The comping's done by the ensemble really in a certain kind of way. But, uh, exactly. But for those of you who don't know this record, Definitely check it out. Wide angles, and you won one of your Grammys for it. It's it's really two, uh, two. I'm sorry, and I, <laughs> two Grammys because it but, was uh, for best arrangement and also best album. Okay, yeah, yeah, well deserved. And uh, it's the work that Gil did is really uh, really tremendous on that. I love big well, fan of that you know, record. I you know again, I have to give very big uh, credit to Mike. You know, I mean, it, the, the the composition was very strongly presented mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and i had to find a way to you know but then again you know the things he gave me were usually a minute and a half or two minutes long it was the song okay. and i had to create an introduction i had to create a blowing section they yeah. didn't have blowing sections and a, sh a shape of it but again the key to everything was starting with this unique instrumentation that I still didn't really know and I wasn't you know um, comfortable in it yet and another really good thing that Gil Evans said to me once that he said when he started writing like miles ahead he said the first arrangement took him a really long time because the instruments were still very abstract and the sound of the whole thing was amorphous, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But once you do one, then you go, oh, yeah, okay, yes, okay, this is the, the medium. Mm -hmm. And the first one that I did, I think, was a piece by Don Grolnick called Evening Faces that Mike had found the dat that Don had given to him and I transcribed that one I did just without a demo except Don playing it mm -hmm. and he, Don said this was formerly called Evening Faces well, I don't know what that meant <laughs> and then he played this song formerly called Evening Faces <laughs> Hmm. What's it called now? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so I transcribed it, and it really seemed to fit into, and I, then I said to Mike, you know, it seems like it's more like a string quartet than, you know, three strings. He goes, I was going to say that. I said, okay, we're on the same page, mm. you know. Mm -hmm. We're, okay. And it was a perfect opening for string quartet and Mike, and then it got into kind of swingy and it was brass and woodwinds and, and the strings too. So then I had to confront Timbuktu and that seemed, again, like starting from scratch. I didn't really understand the, 
what I was working for. And that took me a very long time. And you know, like most arranging projects, deadline are very short. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how long I had. I might have had three months tops mm -hmm. to do it. You know, it might have been less than that. I mm -hmm. would have to look at the dates and Sibelius, but it was not more than that. Mm -hmm. And so the first piece, I mean, Evening Faces, I did pretty quickly. And then Timbuktu, I was really stuck on. Hmm. I was confused. I mm -hmm. didn't know if it sounded close to the demo that I had added anything significant. And I was like, is this anything? And I said, I can't think about that now because I have eight other things I have to write. And then it just started going faster. And it like yeah. picked up speed. And then at the end, there was Angle of Repose, Scylla, and another one that I had like three days. But I knew the thing now. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Scylla was a song that Mike had for many years and tried to put on two records, recorded. It was originally called Chicky Thing. It had a very kind of Chick Corea sound. Huh. And I completely re-envisioned it, and it finally got on the record. So that was a kind of a nice, you know, that I could... And it really, I just kind of went, I'm not going to use, like, all those chords. It's going to be open A minor, and it's going to be a kind of a, yeah. you know... And so, you know, but at that point, I was very confident about mm -hmm. the instrumentation. And I was like, I know, I know what I'm doing now mm -hmm. with this sound, you know. It certainly, uh, as, as the whole record holds together so well, it's like it has a real cohesiveness to the or orchestration. And of course, as you're saying, you know, let's uh, thank okay. you for sharing all that about Mike. It's uh, so great that it's out there and uh, uh, we appreciate that. Um, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about, uh, I know you've done a lot of work for motion picture television. Maybe talk about how you, and I, I, and I sense that you prefer working with artists and, and doing that, but I was you curious know, Give to, me a big be, movie, I'll take it. <laughs> you know, but I feel like I, I, I've done, I, I know how to do it. I think the best work that I've done in, in motion pictures is when I would orchestrate, and I've orchestrated for uh, Ryuichi Sakamoto mm -hmm. a lot, mm -hmm. and I've had some great experiences with him, and uh, also with Pat, I, I orchestrated uh, his movie uh, Map of the Map World, of the World right? yeah. which is an incredible yeah. movie, Yeah, I have and that soundtrack. Pat wrote it's an great. incredible score, mm -hmm. you know, it was a really, it was amazing. And it was another, that was a funny story in a way too, because I, I had another job to write a soundtrack for a movie called Simply Irresistible that I did in about three weeks by the time the themes were approved. It might have been less. Mm -hmm. And Pat came to the session and he, he listened. He goes, oh, this sounds great. He goes, I have a movie that I'm doing in about two weeks. He goes, do you think you could orchestrate it? I said, oh, yeah. He goes, it makes me a little nervous that you're so confident that you can do it. I said, well, I just did this and about the same time, and I, I know I, I can do it. And especially that I could say what the instrumentation was, then I was already, I know this instrumentation, uh -huh. you know. And so I felt confident, you know, and I started working, but again, I started slow. 
because I didn't know the sound of Pat's movie and what he wanted me to do. And then once I got going, and then I had a gig with Al Giroux, who I had arranged his orchestral show and conducted for. I said, Pat, I have to go. I have to go. I have, I'm going to California for three days. He goes, Gilbert, it's right in the middle. You can't get a sub. I said, I really can't. But I said, don't worry, because I can work when I travel. I'm very good at doing that. And I got on the plane, and I wrote for six hours on the way to California. I almost missed the gig. I was in my hotel, like, writing. And I went, jeez, it's 9 o'clock already? You're kidding. I literally almost missed the gig. I come rushing into this place, like, I'm here. You know. <laughs> and I came back and I said, okay, Pat, here's what I got. He goes, really? You did all that? He goes, you should go away more often. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I had bought, like, I had the same system as Pat. I had the same big, fat computer, you know. And I really didn't need any of it. He goes, you really don't need any of this stuff, do you? He goes, you could just sit on a, on a park <laughs> bench with a cassette. I said, actually true, you know, I'm actually more comfortable when I'm uncomfortable and I'm just like, like this, than in, with the nice computer in the hip little, we were in the F&L truck, uh -huh, and it was like, you know, this is all set up to be productive, and I went, I'm not productive. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not being productive. Can I go to the park bench with a cassette? And, you know, so I just kept going from that point. But again, a slow start. Mm -hmm. Very mm -hmm. slow start. Yeah. Well, that's very cool. Let's talk a little bit yeah. about your teaching. And, and I know uh, we were talking before the interview started, but right now you're doing some work at NYU, but you've done work all over the world teaching-wise. But just share your thoughts about uh, your feelings about teaching. And I know... Uh, um, you've had a lot of success as a teacher, so curious about your I would approach. like to think that, you know, I always think of teaching as a big part of my career, and I, I can hardly imagine my career without teaching. I feel like it's a little bit of a debt that we kind of all owe, you know. I'm not the most charitable person. I don't have, like, charities that I give uh, <laughs> 200000 a year. Or even a dollar. <laughs> so, you know, I feel like, you know, I have a little money, but, you know, I'm not giving it away. No, no, no. no. But I feel like I have to be charitable with the stuff that I know because I feel like a lot of what I can do is based on what I've learned from people and books and what I've learned on my own and from observing and I feel like I have to kind of share it and mm. I never know the right venue to share it at. Mostly I teach one-on-one. -on -one. I don't really prefer teaching a class so much uh, when I did. I felt like I couldn't really communicate enough and I felt like, do you get this? But I like this idea of putting information out that somebody can accidentally stumble on or on purpose stumble on and go, okay, you know, that resonates with me. Good. I'm very happy to do that. Mm -hmm. And at this point in the talk, I would like to talk. <laughs> 
Now, this is a book that I wrote in, I'm going to say, I don't even remember, but I think it was first published, it doesn't even say, it was published, <laughs> I think, in 1981. It was published in 1981. So it started off, this, this book started off as a, uh, it was going to be a series of books published by Music Sales called Fusion. Fusion piano, fusion guitar, bass. Al Dimion was going to write one, Jeff Berlin, and I was going to write one. I'm sure there was fusion drums. So I started writing a book. And then they called me up and they said, I'm terribly sorry. We decided not to go ahead with that um, series. Mm. We found that it, we don't think it's something that we want to pursue. Nothing personal. I said, it's not, uh, not only not personal, but I didn't particularly want to write that book. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I think I have a much better book. <laughs> you know, I was trying to turn lemons into chocolate milk. Yeah. Doesn't, That's almost it's, impossible. It's pretty but, much <laughs> Right. And so I said, I would like to write a book about composition and just a general, you know, approach to music. And they said, okay. Mm. I went, all right. So, uh, so I started to write a book. Um, I forgot the fusion book. And I started to write a book about what I say was everything that I knew in music at the time, and it's still about everything that I know. <laughs> um, but I think they're very important concepts, including the idea of melody as a graph, you know, which is the Schillinger right. idea. Now, whereas Schillinger's books were about this thick, each one of them, I did it in two pages. I like the approach. You know, I like it better. You know, because <laughs> I'm saying, you know, this is the overriding thing. You can think of many possibilities, and I'm not going to tell you any other possibilities. Mm -hmm. But it's up to you. And so I, I had written a book that I divided into melody, harmony, and rhythm, the normal thing, and tone color. And I, 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 I showed it to Steve Swallow at the time. I had done a record with him, and I said, Steve, I'd like to show you this book. I trust you as a thinker and as a musical person. And he said, okay, Gil, it's a very nice book, but I think it's a little bit dry. And I think you should have a human perspective in it and interview composers about their process. Mm. And I said, that's a very good idea, Steve. Mm -hmm. Can I interview you now? <laughs> and I did. I interviewed him right there. And there's a Steve Swallow interview in the book. I will now read it to you. <laughs> when I was a kid, I wanted to be a poet. And to find out more, you will have to buy This book is available online, I'm, I'm it's guessing. Available it's available at jazzbooks.com, the Jamie Abersaw, whatever that okay, is. Okay, yeah, yeah. Jazz book. And uh, so it was republished, and this is the third printing of it. I got to meet. Bill Evans, who, in addition to Gil Evans, is the other biggest musical influence in, and they just happen to be the Evans-Ziz. But, I mean, Bill, I always wanted to meet, and it was through this book that I could really meet him. Wow. Because I went to him as a, 
not as a piano player, but as like, I'm writing this book and I told him about all my stuff about Schillinger and Fibonacci and musical number series. And he goes, that's fascinating. <laughs> you know, that is fascinating. And I went, really? You're fascinated by that? And I got to become kind of friends with Bill wow, from that's that. so cool. In the last year of his life, we would go out to dinner together and, oh, man. you know, and, and he wrote the foreword to my book. And, oh, that's sweet. And I'm going to read you the first line of it. I don't even have to read it, but because it, I remember it, it starts off, Gil Goldstein can scare me. <laughs> right there, you can see That's it. what it says. And, and you have to buy the book to find out why <laughs> I scared the eleven. It's well worth the money just for that alone. Hello. Plus you get all the instruction. Come on. Hello. And uh, Christmas, the the Christmas Hanukkah, come on. It's like this Christmas is perfect. Hanukkah oh, wait, on. this is going to air in January, so it'll be like a Valentine's gift or something like nice that. Nice for Valentine's, for ones you love. <laughs> so, but that I got to meet Bill Evans, and I interviewed him, and got to, you know, I think he says things in this book about his approach. And honestly and truly, things that people have said in my book, that's all I know about composing and, you know, it's mm -hmm. just this, you know, it's, uh, it's just this hands-on approach that is just so valuable, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I continue to learn from the interviews or remember what, like, for example, Steve Swallow said to me, um, you know, I was trying to write a song like Blue and Green, like that was a asymmetrical shape, you know, 10 bars or some unusual shape that would come up on itself and then recycle, you know. I didn't want to write a square song. Mm -hmm. And he said, I sat down at the piano for days and came up with nothing. And then all of a sudden, I heard a little melody in my head and I go, oh, my order has arrived. So I went, man, That's if great. that is in the nature of composition, you know, you right. can knock your brains out. Right. Like, is that it? Is that it? You know, and it is not it. And you know it's not it. Yeah. And then you walk away from the instrument and you're doing the laundry and you go, da, 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 da. oh, that's a melody, right? What is that melody? That's the melody I ordered. <laughs> that is the melody. And Bill Evans said the exact same thing. He said, sometimes I'm in between takes on a record date and I play something and I don't know where it came from. He says, but I know that has musical importance to me. Mm. And I go, well, well said, William. Wow. <laughs> you know, and I go, wow, that is it. So if you're tuned into the fact that I'm writing an arrangement, going back to the question of a half hour ago, and <laughs> I'm looking for a starting point and I don't have it, and I'm dying to know what's going to be the focus of it, sometimes walking down the stairs to park the car, literally, and I go, that's it. That's yeah. actually the arrangement. Mm -hmm. I just thought of the arrangement. And I did that on Wallace Roney's record. He had he was going to do a record of Brazilian-inspired music. 
plus Michelle, the Beatles song. Mm. And I went, really, Michelle? Why Michelle? You know, bright Michelle. <laughs> My bell. Uh, no, no, not really. Can we get that off the list? No, I really want to do it. No, no, it's kind of a, I have a thing about that too. And literally going down the stairs to do laundry, maybe, I heard Michelle in E minor, first of all, and almost sounding like Nardis. Da, da, dee, da. Da, dee, da, da, da. And I went, that's the arrangement. I, I have it. Uh, it's not bright. It's an E minor, mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's dark. And I heard lines and I had it in about 10 minutes. I had the whole thing. That's the arrangement. Here it is. It's done, <laughs> you know. And it literally, I had ordered it, you know, and I had to wait for it to appear, mm -hmm. you know, That's which implies that, you know, you can know what you hear and know what it is and know how to take what could seem like just a little insignificant moment and say, no, no, that's an important moment. That's mm -hmm. the moment I've been waiting for. That's mm -hmm. the... That's the arrangement right there. Yeah. Or the song that you were trying to write. Yeah, very cool. That's a great way. That's all contained way in this book. <laughs> that, that book's available, right? You can that, buy book that book is not available anymore. But <laughs> and you, this you, last edition, I got to interview Wayne Shorter. Oh, wow. Who knows something about composing? A little something, yeah. And uh, Esperanza Spaulding. And I, Pat was part of the first book that I interviewed him. And he always said to me, Gil... I don't really like the interview that I did in the book. I felt like I didn't say the important things about... He said, if you ever get to do the book over, I would really like to do it over. And they called me and went to a new publisher. It's now published by Shot Music, S-C-H-O-T-T. Okay. It still says advanced music on it, mm -hmm. where it went second. But now it's at Shot. And they said, we're going to republish your book and... We, if you want to change anything, wow, you can great. do it. So and so I called up Pat, and he goes, Gil, you're not going to believe this. I was just thinking, I really have to do that over. I said, <laughs> you're not serious. He goes, I am totally serious. The, two days ago, I said, gee, I hope I can really do that over, because I really didn't wow. like it. And then he said, when do you need it by? I said, uh, well, I don't know, whenever. And the next day, he sent me like, 12 pages of like <laughs> written out this is the thing that's this awesome. is my thing and i went okay that's very good <laughs> that's awesome yeah gil you've been so generous today with your time thank you and it's been an absolute ball i have, that's one, it? I have one more question for you um and for those of you uh, i should point out gil is going to be doing a, a lesson for routine. our, our <laughs> Our Hip Bone You uh, lesson series, Gil's going to be doing a lesson that'll come out in the spring, so stay tuned for that. It'll be a lot of great stuff, I'm sure. Gil, um, and feel free to add anything you, that you felt like you left out, but one of the things that we kind of always end with is, is advice for young players and things, you know, you've had such an incredible, an extraordinary career. Um, I thought one way that I would ask you that question is what you look for in players. And, you know, I've always been... 
I think every all of us who play for you, we want to we want to please you. We want you to feel like you're getting exactly what you're hearing. And uh, what is it? What are the qualities that you look for in the in the players that you hire in particular? I mean, of course, you could speak to the artists that you work with, but more more as as the leader of the session and and the leader of the ensemble. You know, I, I, it's it's going to sound funny to say this, but. I wouldn't mind a certain amount of nervousness that, like, I hope this is going to be good, you know. <laughs> because I think without that, nobody accomplishes anything. Hmm. You know, if you don't have a certain... I remember going to Mike Sessions, and we recorded at Bennett Studios, and I was a nervous wreck, you know. I actually took, like... Uh, uh, like kava kava root or something and passion flower <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> I feel pretty good <laughs> Joyce Hammond would bring me kava kava oh, okay. root yeah. she brought it to me she she's delivered. known for her kava kava yeah, root she's, yeah. very good. she's very good at kava kava and uh so, you know, I think if you're not nervous and if you're not trying to, you know, not necessarily please, but just do your best, you know. Pat, I just did a record, arranged a record with Alan Broadbent and I for Pat's new record. And he went to L.A. to record it. And he said, everyone played every note with such determination and mm. seriousness that it was very rare for him, you mm. know, that they really, you know, and I kind of said, as it should be, you know. Yeah. I mean, we should all do that whenever we play, you yeah. know, and why not, mm -hmm. you know. And so, I, I don't know, there's a certain amount of... Uh, anguish of your own standards that you have to put yourself through i think mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and if i see somebody there like i'm i'm gonna try to do my best mm -hmm. even if they don't do their best i mean even if they it's something goes wrong you know it that has to be there i would mm -hmm. say mm -hmm. and then just you know the preparation you know uh you know before is obviously essential but you know the just the the willingness to make it good and you know pat is like one of these people that's the perfect example of like nothing will go wrong if pat is there because he puts his you know it's like this will succeed mm. you know they will not fail because i played with pat in 1991 92 I played on his secret story tour and there was so much music and so many movable parts That I said are we gonna be able to play all this music? Before the first gig we had about a week of rehearsals production with lights and, You know and I went wow this is is this gonna be good? Is this gonna come off without a hitch and Pat came out on stage like you know, and I went, this is going to be good. I can say for a fact that this is going to be good. You know, because it was like, this is not going to fail. Yeah. I can tell you that. You know, and it put just a, you know, 
And the same thing with Gil Evans, the first gig I did with Gil Evans. He was late to come on stage, and we hadn't really rehearsed very well, or, and was pretty loosely organized. And Gil came on stage, and he went like, and I went, oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> this is going to be good. He's totally relaxed, but he's like, you guys are with me. Yeah. Everybody's with me here, right? You're all with me. I'm, like, I'm with you, you know. <laughs> I'm with you here. And so if you have that thing that it's going to, you know. Yeah. And I wish I always had that when I, another great Gil Evans story. The Do you know the record with, with Helen Merrill called Dream of Me? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, he, that was the first record he arranged the whole record of. Helen's very proud of that, that she said, mm. I want Gil Evans to arrange the whole record before he would do two record songs on a Johnny Mathis record, two songs on the Claude Thornhill, you know, it was right. not. So, so a Japanese company said, we want a new Helen Merrill record. So we, we, he, someone, I think, transcribed the stuff and we had a group together, you know, and one of the songs really didn't sound well, you know, and, Gil went, guys, guys, please, please contribute, and your contributions will be appreciated. Because he knew that everybody knew what to do. Mm -hmm. You can make this sound good. You just didn't do it that time. Right. You know? And he kind of read them the riot act in a very nice way. Uh -huh. And everybody went, oh yeah, oh yeah, we can definitely do that, sure. <laughs> And the next take sounded like a world different, wow. you know, and yeah. it was like, you know, come on. Yeah. And that's what it takes, people pulling together. Nobody makes music until that happens. It, mm -hmm. You know, the notes can be there perfectly. And if people don't exert that thing, the Pat or the Gil Evans thing, it's uh... going to be a... It's a great way to say it. Yeah. <laughs> Gil, thank you so much for your time today and the great Thanks, stories. Brian. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, everybody check out the Jazz Composer's Companion. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. This has uh, really been a, a great uh, interview with Gil today. And uh, we will see all of you next time on Bone to Pick.